Thanks for listening to today's message. We hope that it will encourage you and help you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more. I hope you have your Bible with you or an app, and if you know that you're going to be way too distracted using the Bible app because everything else is accessible there, then maybe grab a physical Bible. We're in the book of Hebrews in a series called Compare Jesus, and we're looking at how Christ is revealed throughout the whole book. Um, and if you've got your Bible, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22 is where we're going to go in just a moment. Let me give you a bit of uh, a recap. If you're joining us maybe for the first time in this series or you're a guest, I just want to give you a little bit of context so you understand the lay of the land in Hebrews, why we're looking at this, and how it may actually speak to you and I today. Isn't it fascinating that uh, manuscripts written about 2,000 years ago have the living breath of God in them, and they actually speak to circumstances and situations that you face today. 2,000 years ago, about, I don't know, maybe say 20 to 40 years after the ascension of Jesus, there were certain groups of his followers that were experiencing quite a unique temptation. Many of the first Christians had come out of Jewish faith origins. Now, the Jewish population in the Roman Empire, which was the, sort of the mega force of the day, the Jewish population was substantial enough that um, they had some influence in the Roman Empire. Not a lot, but they had some. And in the Roman world, at one point in their historic journey, the Roman emperor realized he was God. And uh, it was a pretty fortunate realization for himself because he could you know, tax the people extra or whatever else he wanted to do, force them to worship him, which became part of the plan. Now, for the average Roman citizen... That wasn't too difficult of a thing to include worshiping the emperor alongside your local pagan deities that you worshiped also. But for the Jewish population, this was problematic. Now, the Roman emperors throughout history, many of them didn't want to have too much of uh, you know, opposition or bad relationship with the Jewish population because they were sizable enough that it could create distress within their empire. And so at one point in the history of Rome, they negotiated a deal with some Jewish leaders in certain regions of Rome where there was what was called an exemption for Jewish people. You see, it was mandated in the Roman Empire for everybody to pray to the emperor. Pray to the emperor. But of course, the Jewish population wouldn't do that. But after the exemption, the Jewish population was allowed to pray for the emperor, not to him. And Rome was good with that. And of course, the Jewish people were good with that too because they weren't killed for not worshiping the emperor that way. Now, for the Christians, some of these first Christians 20 to 40 years after Jesus, who came out of Jewish roots, the Christians were not given the same exemption. It was a very small sect of new believers. And so it became tempting when their lives were on the line. You see, if there was maybe bad weather one season and it wiped out a bunch of crops, the culture of the day assumed somebody's not worshiping our local gods properly. So they'd look around, try to figure out who's, who's messing up in the worship side of things. You see, worship in the Roman world was actually a defense mechanism. There was no, you know, nobody thought that gods were actually good and loving and benevolent, really. They thought, we have to keep them happy. We have to defend ourselves against their attacks upon us. 
So good defense against the gods was good worship. And if this this Christian sect was not worshiping the gods, the local ones, or the emperor, well, they must be the ones causing all the crop failures or the recent invasion of this other neighboring nation or whatever it may be. The Christians became an easy scapegoat for problems in Rome. So why why did this create a temptation for the Christians? They're remembering their Jewish roots, and they're looking over their shoulder at their, you know, Jewish friends that they used to associate closely with, and they're looking how freely they're living in their exemption. So there'd be a temptation to think, maybe we can sort of still be kind of Christian, but more Jewish again. And so there was a temptation to begin relying on the old way of doing things to be in relationship with God versus relying on Jesus, because Jesus was the absolute center of this new Christian faith. But Jesus had really nothing to do with what was being celebrated in Judaism. And so they were tempted to sort of return back. And so the author of Hebrews is kind of like, hang on. You're tempted to go back to old ways of doing things? Compare Jesus. you got to think this through before you go back. Because Jesus is what either puts us in this camp or not in that camp or not in that camp. You've got to evaluate Jesus. So that's why our series is called Compare Jesus. Over and over again in the book of Hebrews, this word better shows up. Can everybody say better? Better. Oh, thank you. You're with me, even on a warm, hot day. Should we get air conditioning? We should take an offering right now, I think. We probably need $100,000, but uh, this, we're, we're going to do a summer campaign one year for air conditioning. I think that's the best time to do it. The word better appears over and over in Hebrews. Why? Because the author wants the readers, the first hearers, you and I today, to evaluate several things in our past and around us and compare Jesus Is he better or is he not? You and I should not be nervous about comparing Jesus. Because if our faith is everything it supposes to be, Jesus can withstand comparison. Quite fine, thanks. Right? Amen. So the author, throughout his book, this is a bit of review for some of you who are with us in the first week. He drops five specific warnings, and I want you to notice the progression in these warnings. I'll put them on the screen right now. The first warning appears in chapter 2, and it's a warning against drifting away in your faith. You know, just the sort of subtle decisions. I'm going to just miss this, or I'm going to skip that, and now you're slightly afloat and off course just a little. The second warning comes in chapter 3, and it's allowing your heart to harden. If there's one thing that the enemy would love to do, I mean, there's a lot of things the enemy would love to do, but the enemy would definitely love to create offenses in your heart against God. Because if you can harden your heart towards God, you're on a path towards leaving faith. The third warning is against spiritual indifference. This shows up in chapter 6. Starting to feel meh, M-E-H. You know that word? Meh. Just starting to feel meh about spiritual topics and issues. Things that should matter to your faith suddenly are in the category of meh. Fifth war- or fourth warning is against deliberate sin. You notice the progression. Nobody 
it, it seems, you know, for most of us, we don't just walk right into deliberate sin. But after enough drifting and hardening of heart and then meh, all of a sudden deliberate sin just seems a little more natural, doesn't it? So a warning about that comes in chapter 10. And then ultimately all of these warnings lead to the fifth one. If you find yourself on this path, it leads ultimately to number five, refusing Jesus. At some point it's like, you know, yeah, I kind of used to believe this or I was brought up this way, but it's, it's not for me. Five important warnings. If we were to summarize the book of Hebrews, in just three of its verses, I would turn your attention to chapter 12, and I have it on the screen here. It says this, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix, can you say fix? Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. He's the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful people so that you do not grow, grow weary and lose heart. Can you hear how that's speaking to those Christians stuck in the tension between, I know that I belong here, but I'm tempted to go back here because this keeps me free in this world right now. If I have the exemption, I don't have the Roman threat. But if I keep following Jesus, I have the Roman threat. And so the author of Hebrews says, no, 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 keep your eyes on Jesus. And when you look at him, remember his sacrifice. He endured Roman threats and Jewish threats to the point of the cross. And he did it for you and for I. Set your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. We're so blessed to have missionaries with us today. Missionaries always have the best stories. In fact, there's another good reason to come back tonight at 7 o'clock. There's going to be great stories. Missionaries always have great stories. Uh, a, a, a missionary in Canada who's passed away in recent years named Don Richardson went to Guinea, Western New Guinea. And um, he's written several books, many excellent stories in there. One of my favorite stories is of a time, I can't remember if it was him or somebody he was working with, but there was a pilot who needed uh, a landing strip in a particular area in uh, Western New Guinea. And they were working with tribal people who had no contact with the Western world whatsoever. So everything about what they were experiencing through the missionaries was brand new to them. You know, when they saw an airplane first, it freaked them out, all that kind of stuff. So, uh, but with the missionaries came a lot of real and important help for their community, for health and so on. And so they were curious about listening to the message of Jesus and all of those things. And so this pilot needs an airstrip built. And so they thought, let's um, work out an agreement with the local tribes people and we'll get them to help work on this with us and for us and we will um, help their community. So it was sort of an exchange. There was an agreement. And whenever the missionary was there working with them, the work went well. But when the missionary went to go do other things, the local tribes people would sit around and wouldn't work. I mean, they figured it out. He's not watching. We don't have to work. He'd come back. Nothing had happened. I have to stay here. What's, this is not good. It just so happened that this particular missionary in the story had a glass eye. So he took it out one time and he put it on a stump facing the workers. They all saw him do it and then he walked away. When he came back hours later, they were all working feverishly. He set his eye on them. Now, you and I, most of us don't have glass eyes that we know of. If you have a glass eye, wink at me twice. Oh, um, most of us don't have a glass eye. But set your eye on the stump so that it faces Jesus always. Does that make sense? 
always. Life, the past, circumstances will always try to turn our attention and affections elsewhere. No, set your eyes on Jesus. If we had to summarize Hebrews in a single line or a single message, it would be this. Remain faithful to Jesus, even when it's challenging. Does this speak to us today, or was this just for 2,000 years ago? I think this is the beauty of Scripture. It spoke specifically into a unique circumstance that, first of all, you know, just a few hundred, maybe thousand followers of Christ that were experiencing the tensions of what do we do with the Roman exemption for Jewish people and how does that affect us We're not living in that world right now, but we are living in challenging times. You know what it's like to go through real difficulty and to begin questioning faith. Compare Jesus. He's better. Remain faithful to him even when things are challenging. So we've been journeying through Hebrews, looking at different times that the word better is employed and it points us to Jesus. So the first week we talked about him being the better priest. And then we heard Pastor Trevor talk about him being the better hope. And last week, Pastor Clay, his first message ever, brought a great one to us on Jesus, the better promise. And today I ask you to turn your attention with me to chapter 7, verse 22. One line which reads this, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. I just heard paper moving, like real Bible paper. Thank you so much. I love that sound. So that thoroughly distracts me, but it's so good. Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Can you say the word covenant? A better covenant. This is the first appearance of the word covenant in the book of Hebrews. But after this, into chapters 8, 9, and 10, the word appears 14 more times. Chapter 8, 9, and 10 are sort of like this mega covenant-focused section that really unpacks for us what it means for Jesus to be a better covenant. What does the word covenant mean? Covenant is a formal binding agreement. Covenant is stronger than a contract. Covenant is stronger than just commitment. Uh, It's been a while since I've done this here. We're going to do it again. This will be a review for some of you and new to others. I want everybody to take right hand or left. Let's do left. I'm left-handed. Everybody take your left hand, put it up in the air right now, and then make do this. It's your gospel gun. And then uh, put it in front of your face like this and grab your nose, okay? Just squeeze it hard. Please do it, Jackie. Thank you. Now pull your nose off your face. No. Pull harder. Okay, everybody, with your fingers pinching your nose so it sounds nasally like this, say after me, repeat after me, my nose is committed to my face. Covenant is stronger than that. Covenant is stronger than that. In the ancient Near East, so outside of the Jewish world, but in other ancient cultures, covenant came into form, many historians believe, probably through agreements between, between tribes and clans for intermarrying. Many of the tribes and clans had figured out, this is not going well for us when, we, you know, when siblings are getting married and all that kind of stuff. We need to get marriages happening between tribes. But they were at war with each other, or there were tensions. And so they realized, if we can draw up agreements for peace... Relationships can happen between the tribes and the clans. And this, it seems, may have been some of the origins of some of the first covenants in history. Of course, this grew and the understanding of it grew. And so nations would start entering into covenants with other nations. Almost always, ancient covenants featured 
a stronger group and a weaker group. And the stronger group really didn't want the weaker group to create too much problem for them, so they were invested in the idea of a covenant. And the weaker group really didn't want to get, you know, uh, stamped on by the bigger group, so they were all for a covenant too, as long as there was mutual peace at the center of its goal. And that's how covenants originated outside of biblical history. In biblical history, we learn a lot about covenants in the first part of the Bible especially. There's all kinds of initial covenants. Probably the primary covenant most of us think about or recall is the one that happens between God and his people Israel at the Mount Sinai, and it's mediated by Moses. This is after God's people had been held as captives in Egypt, slaves for 400 years. They've now been set free and delivered by God. They're coming towards a land of promise for them, and God has a desire Ever since Abraham, and even if you back up in Scripture, if you scroll all the way to the beginning, God's always had a desire to bring blessing all around the world. His blessing all around the world. It was his intention in Eden. Sin interrupted, but God kept going. And then he made an agreement with Abraham and said, I want to bless the whole world and I'll do it through you. And then all of Abraham's descendants find themselves as captives in Israel, and they come out, and now they're going to form a new nation. And God says, listen, I'm not done with this idea of filling the world with my blessing. Now I need a nation that I can totally bless so that through them, the world can be blessed. That was his intention and heart. And so he wanted to draw up an agreement with them. That was what was going on in the ancient Near East at times, was covenants between a king and a leader. And Israel's king at the time was Yahweh. And so a covenant was drawn up, and Moses came down Sinai, and he had two tablets, and there was the Ten Commands, and if you read through the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, there's all kinds of detail, and some of it seems so painstaking and like, God, why did you care so much about infections and this and that, clean this, unclean that? Do you realize the kind of advantage enormous advantage that was given to God's people because they had a covenant with him that included laws that cared about health guidelines. What nation at that time had health guidelines? No one. And God shows up. If you follow the story and you put your trust in the Bible, you're seeing a God who cares about how his people are. And in a world where there's no health guidelines, he delivers through the law. Why was the advantage given to his people, Israel? Was it so he could punish the rest of the world? No, his desire was always to bless the whole world through his people. And so covenant became an important way that he set up that intention again. Covenant was God's way of saying, I am giving myself to you completely, exclusively, and permanently. And the Jewish people, those first nation, the, the, God's nation of Israel, had ways of responding to him saying, okay, we will enter into covenant with you and we will give ourselves to you completely, exclusively, and permanently. That's the nature and language of covenant. Now, as you look through scripture, the first covenants, they, did never, they never dealt permanently with sin. It exposed sin. In fact, every human, if they were honest, realized this is hard to keep. So they realized their need for God. Covenants before the new covenant with Christ, the first covenants, 
did not deal permanently with sin. It only exposed it. And it pointed people to a faithful God who would carry his people if they would trust him. Not in their own obedience to fulfill covenant, but if they would trust in his obedience to carry them in covenant. What we learn through scripture is that from Moses all the way through Jesus, God's people, Israel, failed in two significant ways. Number one, ongoing unfaithfulness. They would cheat on God. It was called idolatry. They would borrow the other nation's gods. They would follow the other nation's ways. And yet we see over and over again through the story of the Old Testament, God being faithful to his people. His overwhelming, like we sung about, his reckless love, pursuing his people. So their first failure was unfaithfulness. Their second failure was they actually began to believe that they could rely on their own abilities and efforts to fulfill covenant and law. I mean, it became painfully obvious to all of them, we're terrible at this. But somewhere, some of them began to think, no, 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 if we give enough attention to this, we can do this right. And so they gave way more attention to it, to the point that they choked out life and reverted what was designed to be a beautiful faith that trusted Yahweh, trusted the living God. It turned that into a performance-oriented religious system. That's why in the New Testament we keep hearing about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, these lawgivers, who they were basically spiritual lawyers all trying to figure out how they could control God with their good behavior. I mean, what a... They had wandered so far away from the heart of covenant, which was we're giving ourselves to you, we're backing this up with our lives, completely, entirely, permanently to one another, trusting you, God, to carry us. And now it had turned into the, a vast perversion of that, where people thought they could manage their own behavior perfectly enough to somehow manipulate God. Things were well off track. That's a little bit about covenant. As I mentioned earlier in, in chapter 7, verse 22, the verse you see right now, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Clearly, there were some covenant problems that needed improvement, and we find a solution in Jesus. What I said was in chapter 7 is the first time we find the word covenant. In chapter 8, 9, and 10, it appears 14 more times. Rather than us reading in the heat here through chapter 8, 9, and 10 together, let me give you the highlight reel right now. In Hebrews chapter 10, it says this, the law is only a shadow of good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. In Hebrews chapter 9, it says, this was the Holy Spirit's way of showing with a visible parable that as long as the temple stands, people can't just walk in on God. Have you ever noticed in the Old Testament all these details of worship, how you're to approach God, and all these sort of rooms and special rooms and special areas in the temple and for worship? It sent a message to the world that with sin as a barrier, we can't just show up. We can't just barge our way into God's presence. This is an illustration for present times, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the consciences of the worshiper. Think of that. For millennia, God's people were bringing sacrifices, and yet their consciences were not being dealt with. The sense of guilt and shame was ultimately not handled with through that covenant. 
Hebrews chapter 8, for if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. In Hebrews chapter 8, it says this, and this is the author of Hebrews quoting a, a large selection from Jeremiah chapter 31. It says this, the time is coming, declares the Lord, where I will make a new covenant. Can everybody say new covenant? It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them. This is the covenant I will make. I will put my laws in their minds and write it on their hearts. Let's pause there just for a moment. Many of you know that this past year, Dr. Laura and myself and our children, we got a dog. She's a Doberman Pinscher. She's now almost fully grown. It's a weird thing with dogs because they can get fully grown but still be like a six-year-old. So they've got all the abilities of a big Doberman, but they have the maturity of a real youngster. So it's a real scary threat when you're trying to take it for a walk in the neighborhood, understandably. We are doing our best to leash train her and to train her in many other ways. What are the goals for us as we're trying to train sweet Lainey? Number one, It's to develop a bond with her so that she feels deeply connected to us and loyal to us and us to her. Number two, it's that she would understand who's in charge and delight in that, realizing it's good that they are in charge. Third goal is for Lainey and us to mutually employ our own freedoms to enjoy one another. We've seen other Doberman owners who can walk their dogs with no leash. Some people get scared when they see that. But if that dog and those owners are mutually employing their freedoms to enjoy each other and they share a common bond, it's a good thing and it can happen. Now, this is, I'm sorry that I'm comparing all of us followers of God to dogs, but God is God and we are not. So just work with me. And many of you who have become dog owners, you know that. They're wonderful, and, you know, yeah. We were traveling a little bit earlier this summer. We went to the ferry, and uh, we took Lainey out for a bathroom break, and there's a little dog run at one of the ferries where they can just sort of run around off-leash. And we met up with somebody else who actually had another Doberman pup, and so it was really fun for the dogs to interact. And as long as Lainey was on the leash, she was going berserk. She was pulling as hard as she could. She was jumping. She was barking because she wanted to play. She loves playing with other dogs. And so finally, we opened up and went into this sort of dog play area. It's fenced off, closed the gate, let the dogs meet each other and sniff. And as long as she was on the leash, she was pulling hard. She wasn't listening well. And then we thought, this is going well. Let's just see. And so the other owner agreed to it. We're like, let's just let them play. So off leash they went. And they got along famously. And Lainey was happy. And she was free, and she was responsive to us. We would ask her things or give her commands, and she would turn back and listen, and it was great. And then when it was time to go, click the leash back on, she went back into berserk mode, not listening, totally resistant. Now, isn't that interesting? The law for humanity can sometimes feel like the leash or the restrictions or whatever, But God's goal all along, like you see here, is that his laws would be in our minds and in our heart and built upon a bond that we share with each other, not just sort of tablets of stone. Does that make sense? The text carries on 
in chapter 8, quoting Jeremiah, he says this, I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a person teach their neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all, can you say all? They will all know me from the least to the greatest. Earlier this year, Lauren able to take a quick little holiday. We traveled to a major American city, stayed at a little resort. We had racked up points during COVID. Anybody else? Yeah. So we had points to burn and it was fun to get away, warm up before summer, eat some good food and all of that. And since we had points to burn every once in a while, I know some of you will think this strange. Others will be like, oh, I get that. I like to get a manicure and a pedicure. And because we were at a resort, I thought they've got to have a decent salon here. And rather than wandering into town and going to a little establishment somewhere, I want to go to the proper resort salon. So I booked it, and it was expensive, but points covered it. And I was getting my nails and toenails done, and I had this uh, woman, her name was Glenda. She was maybe in her mid-50s, lovely African-American woman. And she was just so great at carrying on in conversations. We're just chatting about all kinds of stuff. Turns out she's also a follower of Jesus. We talked church and had a great, great time together. And then I realized, okay, I'm in a major American city. She works at a major resort here. I said, have you done nails and stuff like that for like any celebrities? She's like, oh yeah, yeah, I've done that. And she started telling stories, naming names. Now I'm the worst person for knowing who celebrities are, but um, so she rattles off a bunch of country singers that I really don't know and haven't heard of, but I'm like, okay, okay. And then she, she mentioned uh, Queen Latifah, I've heard of her, I'm like, oh, okay. And Bruno Mars and Janet Jackson. And I'm thinking, no way. And so I said, and now you've done mine. And she, I'm sure she's going to tell Janet the next time she does her nail, you know, all about me. But you know, I know Janet Jackson now, right? Because I have a mediator between us, a priest, Glenda, who works for me and for her, so we know each other, right? No, we don't. But you see, in an Old Covenant era, with priests and temple systems, relationship with God was indirect. That's why in Jeremiah... And quoted by the author of Hebrews, God's going out of his way to say, listen, there is coming a day where all the stuff that's in between us, including sin, and then all the red tape and complications of the kind of covenant arrangement we have right now, is going to be changed. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a person say to their neighbor uh, or a man to their brother, know the Lord, indicating Go through a covenant route. Hey, listen, I know this person, therefore you know them. No, no, no. You will all have access to me. You will all be able to know me from least to the greatest. And then the quote lands with this beautiful line. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. Chapter 9. How much more then will the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offered unblemished to God cleanse our consciences from the acts that lead to death so that we might serve the living God. Chapter 7, he is able to save completely those who came to God through him. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all. Could everybody say once and for all? That phrase appears over and over and over again in Hebrews. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all. See, in contrast to the old covenant systems where sacrifices occurred not once, but many times, and not just for all, but for a few. But then Jesus comes along, the better high priest who sacrifices once and for all when he offered himself. 
Last thing in the highlight reel of chapters 8 through 10. Like a will that takes effect when someone dies, the new covenant was put into action at Jesus' death. His death marked the transition from the old plan to the new one, canceling the old obligations and accompanying sins and summoning the heirs, that's you and I, to receive the eternal inheritance that was promised them. He brought God and his people together in a new way. He is a better covenant, friends. Jesus is a better covenant for you and I. Now, after the triumphant sort of message of chapters 8 and 9 and 10, it leaves a lot of those first followers and hearers picking up Hebrews and reading through the scroll, th scroll thinking, well, now what do we do? I'm glad you asked. The text concludes, and I want you to turn with me to chapter 10, verse 19. These are familiar words, but on the heels of what we've just thought about, about Jesus being a new and better covenant for us, I think this makes even better sense for us. Chapter 10, verse 19, I want you to see this for yourselves in your own scriptures right now. I love that I'm hearing some scripture pages. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through that curtain, his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, verse 22, by the way, Hebrews has a lot of lettuce in it. Let us, but if you like lettuce, you can think lettuce. Like my favorite's iceberg. I know it's not that popular, but I love myself a good iceberg. Do I have any? And where's my iceberg people at? Yeah, I thought so. Let us, 22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 23, let us, again, here it is, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. You see, in the new covenant, it hasn't changed. We still can't rely on our own abilities and efforts to maintain covenant. It still is about relying on him, the faithful one. So hold on to him with all the hope you've got. Verse 24, and let us again, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Verse 25, let us one more time, not give up on meeting together as some are in the habit of doing because they like online better than being in person. Oh, you, hey, you should be kind. You didn't just get booed at home. That was uh, something else happened. They saw it in the parking lot. I don't know where it was. But... but let us encourage, let us again, let us encourage one another daily to attend in person and not online. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Let us. Five things the author of Hebrews wants us to do in response to Jesus, the better covenant. Number one, draw near to God. How many of you remember the song, Draw Me Close to You? I love that song. Now, I have a bad imagination, I think, because every time it's sung, I'm imagining us like God's up in heaven with his sketchbook, draw me close to you, and he's like, oh, okay, and then he like erases us, and then he draws us closer to him on the picture, right? Okay, I thought that's cool, but you... you so when, we, when it says draw near to God, if you want help remembering that, don't draw your pictures far away from God, draw them close to God. Still not funny. Okay, let's move on. Number two, white knuckle to Jesus' hope. What does that mean? Um, how many people are roller coaster people? Not me. How many people are not roller coaster people? I can't, ooh, hate them. 
But when I was a youth pastor and when I was dating Laura, our youth ministry went to Playland for a day and I knew I am going to be pressured to go on a roller coaster because if they start, if everybody figures out I'm not a roller coaster person, they're going to try to make me do it. So I'm going to use my own freedom and will to choose a roller coaster. So as soon as we got off the bus, I went straight to the wooden roller coaster. And Laura's like, what are you doing? I thought you didn't like roller coasters. I'm like, I'm doing one. So she was thrilled. And we did the whole roller coaster thing. It's one of the top three worst experiences of my life. <laughs> I mean, I, I sit in the thing and the bar comes and I'm like, should it be this? Like, should there be this much play in the bar? And Laura's all carefree, and then the thing starts, and it was, it was like I saw hell, I'm sure. And then they take a picture of you in your misery. And thank God we did not buy that picture. But it was quite the sight. Laura was thrilled with the picture. I was not. But there she is. I mean, it's at this terrible drop, and so... She's got arms out and just praising the Lord or something. <laughs> and you know the phrase white knuckles. I mean, it's because you're holding on to something so tight. And I'm like clenching my teeth in total fear, thinking I'm dying right now. That's how you're to hold on to Jesus. When you're tempted to go into your past, because it would be a little more comfortable or convenient. When you're tempted to drift away or slack off in faith somehow. When there's hard things that come to you because of work or school, these are hard places to live out your faith. What do you do? Hold on to the hope you have in Jesus. Third, in the English, many English translations, it says spur one another on to love and good deeds. The actual Greek word there is unpleasant. Like it's irritate each other into love and good works. If you have children, you know what it's like when they irritate one another. If you've been a child, you remember irritating somebody else. Spur one another on. Provoke each other to love and good deeds. Fourth, stoke the fires of FOMO. What's FOMO? Fear of missing out. Don't forsake gathering. We travel. We have times where we're away. I know what it's like when there's health issues. And many of the people who do watch us online, it's not the right time for you to come back yet because of COVID or because of your own health concerns of other kinds. We absolutely get it. But if you start drifting away from relationships or from gathering together, you are missing out on something. And here's the other thing I want you to know. Others are missing out on you. You bring a unique contribution, a unique gift your presence, your personality matters. One of our daughters, our youngest one, Mira, who turns eight next Sunday, when she was a little critter, still in the onesies and stuff like that, she would always sleep in the longest in our family. So the rest of us had been up for a while. We'd be sitting in the living room, Laura and I having coffee, the other kids around the table having breakfast, and then we'd hear a little diaper, you know, that crinkly sound of a diaper inside of a onesie coming down the stairs, thump, thump, thump. And then Mira would stop and she'd say, it's Mira. <laughs> she knew that we were missing out on her up until that point. We're like, oh, good, Mira's here. Now today begins. Now, I'm not asking you to walk in uh, on Sunday and saying, it's Sam Biro or it's Dave Stubbs or whoever you are, but you matter here. And if you belong to another church family, you matter to them. Stoke the fires of FOMO. Help other people realize they were missed. Help other people realize it's important when they're around. Fifth, 
encourage one another. Another way of looking at that is give courage to others. There are other people who just the way that they've been living life, they somehow still think that faith rests solely on them and they haven't had the courage to trust that Jesus is their savior. And there's words that you could share with them. There's things that you could do that would give them courage to trust Jesus more. Not their own abilities, not their own efforts, but to trust Jesus more. I want to return back to 722 as we conclude today. Jesus is the guarantee of a better covenant. If you look in the original written language, which is Greek, the word that in many translations gets translated guarantee is a Greek word, anguos, anguos. It can be translated into guarantee, but it's better translated guarantor. And some translations have that. Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. I want to imagine that you are renting a home somewhere. And your landlord is nasty. You've drawn up an agreement with the landlord. You felt like you understood it. You'd signed on it. They had signed on it. But every once in a while, they just barge into your house unannounced. And they're demanding, like, new payments of other kinds. You thought, I didn't, ha- I didn't think I had to pay for this. And they're harassing you. You're afraid of them. They're bullying you. Imagine living in that kind of renting scenario. The landlord is a bully. Extra charges are being applied. Where is this coming from? Somehow, the landlord has accused you of not fulfilling certain obligations, so your credit score is actually damaged. So you're like, I, I'm going to have the hardest time even getting into another place because as soon as they check my credit, it's bad because of where I am. I feel trapped. And along comes somebody else who says, listen, I don't know how this debt has come together, but I'm going to pay off your debt to your landlord there. We're going to get you out of this place and into a new place. So you're like, great. This is great. I'm out. I'm safe. But I'm now going to have the hardest time. I, as soon as I fill out an application to be a resident somewhere else, that person's going to do a credit, you know, a check, and, and I've got a bad credit score. And this person says, listen, I'll sign as your guarantor. That means my credit becomes your credit. Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. You see, even when you live in the new house that he's provided for you and I, when we live in the new reality that He's made a way for you and I to live in. Along comes the old landlord every once in a while, barging his way in, trying to accuse us of the same things and demand the same things from us. And if we have some of those old habits, we might actually think, oh, right, I probably do owe them money. I probably, and no, there is a written agreement, a new and a better one that proves that one doesn't have any claim over me anymore. Somebody else does, and they've signed for me. I have a better guarantor. It's Jesus. The old way of life has no hold on me anymore. The old authority has no hold on me anymore. Why? Jesus is a better covenant. He is a better covenant. In this new covenant, I want you to catch this. This is so important. In this new covenant, there are two parties at the table, God and his followers. And when we look at Jesus... We see exactly what God is like. Can I say that again? This is so important for you to catch. 
When we sit at the table of covenant and we see Jesus, if you've wondered what is God like, and I get it, sometimes when you go through scripture, you're like, ah, this is, I don't know, I don't understand. The final authority, the clearest representation of what God is like is Jesus Christ. At that table, when you see Jesus, you see exactly what God is like. And this is so important, friends. Please look in my eyes. When you sit at that table and God looks at Jesus, he sees exactly what you are like. And if you're like, well, no, that's important. That's no. Like Jesus is perfect and I'm a mess up. Exactly. He's the guarantor that's come along. He's provided a better covenant. He's, he's welcomed you into himself so that when the father looks at the son, that's how he sees you and I. That's good news, friends. It's not about your performance any longer. What a relief. Some people might want to abuse a system like that. Well, if, if God sees Jesus when he looks at me, then I can do whatever I want. You've missed the point. If that's what God's like, why wouldn't you want to follow him? If he responds to our condition by gesturing in covenant at the cross, saying, I give myself completely, entirely, and permanently, and exclusively to you, and I back it up with my life, then how could you and I not wish to say, then I will do the same. Let's stand together. In a moment, we're going to share in communion together. But before we do, I want us just to sing in celebration this song together. You've made a way for us, and we thank you. Now, Father, as we've celebrated communion, it reminds us of your provisions to our lives for the one in the room who needs healing, for the relationship that needs mending, for the soul that needs comfort. It's you alone who make a way. We ask that your work would go with each of us as we go into your world on your mission now. In Jesus' name, we pray this. And everybody said? Amen. Well, it's a warm Sunday. We've gone a little longer so that we could do a second offering for the air conditioning. Now you're even more ready to give me more. That's great. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. God bless you. Please enjoy one another in fellowship outside or at the beach or something. Have a great day and a wonderful week. See you soon. Thanks again for listening to today's message. We hope that it encouraged you as you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more.